01850-62368 without getting lost on the way. The aim of this podcast series is to discuss thought-provoking topics in the testing and certification world that are relevant to your business and useful to you. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Today we're looking at IEC 62368, which is the first global standard to take a hazard-based approach to multimedia product compliance. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're all recording this in our homes. <laughs> Today I've got Richard Pote and Matt Emery with me. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Richard and Matt. Thanks for joining me. For the listeners, can you give us a short overview about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hello, everybody. It's Richard here. So just to give you a little bit of information about me, I'm 25 years working for Tuvsud, um, most of that time dealing with product compliance and certification, um, mainly around product safety. And uh, for me, product safety is really important. I've lived and breathed 6950 and uh, to a lesser extent, the transition to 62368 because it's still a relatively new standard. Um, But for me, this is all about sensible um, product safety and and protection for consumers. Uh, I thought you were going to say 25 years old then, Richard. I did too. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, my name is Matt Emery. Um, I've been working in the electrical safety department here at TUV for a little over seven years now, um, starting uh, as a test engineer and and moving up towards being a reviewing engineer now. I've been mostly working with 6950 in uh, in my early days um, and been working with customers over the last five years, uh, transitioning across to 62368. So hopefully some of the the, the nuggets of information that... um, I can get across today will will be of some use to people. Thanks, Matt and Richard. Right, now on to today's topic. It's um, IEC 62368, and this covers the safety requirements of audio, video information and communications technology equipment. Um, The reason we're discussing this today is because innovation has seen the lines becoming increasingly blurred between what were two previously very distinct types of technologies. So multimedia products are increasingly falling under um, two separate, well, what were two separate standards, um, 60065, which traditionally covered AV equipment, and um, IEC 60950, which um, covers IT equipment. So IEC 62368-1-2018 was therefore introduced uh, to cover products that fall under both of these separate standards um, and this is going to supersede them both worldwide from the 20th December this year. I've heard this is causing some ripples in the electronics compliance world um, mainly because it's introducing a completely new compliance methodology. Um, not only does this standard have differences in its structure, it's actually the first time that a hazard-based approach to product safety He's been taken. So, Richard and Matt, um, I understand that this new 62368 isn't just a repackaged version of the previous two standards, 60950 and 60065. But are the differences really that significant? I think for for those like uh, Mr. Pope, who have been uh, in in the safety world for for many years and is very familiar with uh, 6950 and 60065. Um, at first glance, you would you would look at six two three six eight and through the standard, and you would spot many familiar aspects to it. There are quite a few of the diagrams, 
quite a few of the tests. They are um, they are uh, the same tests that w- would have been applied under the the older standards. Um, but it's all it's all really about the methodology and the the, the hazard based approach is is what the key difference is for this standard. And it it really means that this is not just a merger of the two standards. We are taking fundamentally um, a different direction to how you prove compliance and um, ultimately how you prove your product is is safe. Um, so you're 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 looking. What we mean by the hazard approach is is you're you're not um, you're not designing a product that meets. Uh, a set criteria like you were with the older standards you know you had to pass this particular test you had to design a product to to pass that test what you're doing is you're you're identifying what the hazards are within your product initially so you you can do that um by simple basic tests maybe like uh, maybe maybe an input power test or a heating test can be used to identify where there may be hazardous parts, like hot parts, for example. Um, once you've identified and then quantified those hazards, um, you then need to uh, use what is uh, this new terminology, which is a safeguard uh, within your equipment to, to try and restrict the access of the users and the operators to those hazards. Um, so that's where the test, a lot of the familiar tests then come in. The tests are then um, used to validate the robustness of those safeguards. Yeah. So as Matt said, I think if you pick up the two standards and have a look, you will definitely see some similarities between the two. So you will see heating test requirements and protection against electric shock and design requirements for the fire enclosure and so on. Um for me, the main difference is if you pick up 6950 or 60065, you'll see a very prescriptive set of requirements. You start at clause one and you work the way through until you reach the end of the standard and you go and validate your design against those requirements. Um, the good or bad bit, whichever way you look at it, and I think we'll talk a bit more about this as we go through the through the discussion, um, is that 62368 turns it on its head. It doesn't have that devil of prescriptive detail. What it does have instead is um, it, it forces the reader to look at the, the product they're assessing and say, what are the hazards? And when you've identified those hazards, and it's not, I've made it sound very simple, but actually it's quite difficult. It can be quite difficult to do that. And then when you've done that, you effectively then apply the tests out of the standard to demonstrate that you end up with a safe product. That's the key difference for me. I think one of the main things that um, generally I, I'm asked, and, and it's the first it's first thing that people who have product that is currently compliant with 60950 and 60065 is, um, will it pass 62368? Um, so, as I said in the introduction, I, I've been been working over the last four to five years now with um, with helping clients move their 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 um, testing of their product across the 62368 um, and it's products that are previously compliant um, would they pass it's difficult to tell there will be some form of, of delta testing that is required um, thanks Matt can you just expand a little bit more on what you mean by delta testing and, and why it has to be done so 
there there are some subtle differences in um, test parameters um, and compliance criteria. Although the test um, may look like it was this, it would be the same test as you would have previously done for for sixty nine fifty or six double six five. There are there are a couple of subtle differences. Um, for example. Um, tolerances that you need to apply to, to, to mains voltages are slightly higher. Um, previously, you may have only needed to test up to 254 volts, whereas 6368 um, for, for a 240 volt rated product would have to be now tested at 264 volts. Um, so therefore, you would ha- you potentially have to, to, to make an additional test to prove compliance at the higher voltage. Um, slightly different touch current um, circuits need to be applied. Um, so uh, slightly different electric strength test voltages as well. So there are some subtle differences within the standard. So um, you, you will need to to, to look uh, and review the testing that had been done previously to prove compliance with the older standard uh, and look at the differences to see whether there are any differences. This new sort of hazard-based approach, um, it seems like it's much less prescriptive. So what's the impact for designers and manufacturers that are working to the new 62368 standard? Um, Are there any tangible benefits for them? Actually, that's a really interesting question, and it's quite a long answer because... Um, I think if for people that are used to work into 6950 or 6.0065, it's probably going to be quite hard initially to get out of the mindset of working to a prescriptive standard. And you can follow 6.2368 in a prescriptive kind of way. I think given time, though, the key one of the key advantages I see with 6.2368 is because it doesn't follow that prescriptive methodology what it will allow designers to do is essentially to think a little bit more outside the box. So they could potentially come up with radical new designs or innovations um, that we haven't seen in products before. So maybe it means that products will be become lighter. Maybe they'll become you know more cost effective. They'll have better features. Their manufacturing will be um, you know will be cheaper and quicker and so on. But I think it's going to take time for them to get into that. That mindset. So the critical thing for them to think about is to say, okay, I look at it from a hazard perspective. I identify those hazards. I come up with a solution, maybe whether it's a tried and tested solution, double insulation and protective earth, for example, um, or perhaps something more innovative. And then what you do is you apply the methodology to prove that those safeguards um, are effective in the in the end use. So I think given time, I think actually it will Bruised gives some real good tangible benefits for people. So it kind of sounds like it's going to be the standard's going to provide more future proofing and create safer products for end users. Yeah, future proofing is a great way to put it, actually, because the the I think the industry as a whole has suffered because technology moves massively, massively quickly and standards development moves painfully slowly. And it's always been a problem for the two, you know, for one to keep up with the other one. And particularly nowadays, you know, new technologies, new innovations are coming out all the time. Products have a much shorter life, lifespan. So, yeah, absolutely. I think this standard, I don't think you'll ever get a situation where a standard becomes entirely future-proof but I think this is a good stab at doing exactly that yeah. 
it seems to me that 62368 uh, is much less prescriptive uh, than its two predecessors. But when I was having a look through it the other day, it looked to me like the requirements for batteries are a bit more onerous than in previous standards. Can you explain um, what that's all about, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you're, one of the first things you will you will notice uh, is that the, the requirements for batteries um, uh, are much more stringent. Um, and uh, it kind of relates a little bit to what Richard uh, said in the, the previous, the previous uh, question. He uh, explaining that the, the standard is, is designed to be a bit more future-proof and um, to keep up with the technology. And, and we've seen over the, the last 10, 15 years that um, battery-powered consumer products are much more commonplace. It's, it's um, you know, the people are moving away from 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 traditionally mains-powered devices and, and portable devices using lithium-ion um, rechargeable batteries uh, uh, are very, very uh, common on the market. And there have been some some very high-profile um, instances of of um, problems that these uh product type of products can pose um with risks associated with that power particular power source um so previously there you you had a limited limited test that you would apply to the product um in it, what they're looking for now is not only are the batteries uh, already pre-approved to their appropriate battery standard um there are uh, a large number of IEC safety standards available. Um, also, for, for, for the set, the batteries in the cell to, to to comply with as foundation, and then what we're doing in six two three six eight are we're then validating that the product is using that battery within its pre-tested safety parameters. So. Um, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. You need the foundation for the battery safety to be there with its own uh, safety standard compliance. But then we are looking at how the product is using that battery. So is it using it above or below its uh, safe operating temperatures? Are we, is, it, is it providing it with um, excessive voltage and current or under voltage and current um, for, for for charging and discharging, so we we have a, a a large number of tests, and especially around um, rechargeable lithium-ion batteries, um, they are they're cited as in particular within this standard as as having additional testing requirements. So it sounds like the battery testing is much more comprehensive, and and that element's just going to need more time and attention um, going against this new standard. It, it does. And, and it comes back a little bit also to what we mentioned about delta testing. So previously, if you had a battery power product, which was compliant with 6950, um, you would have you would have applied some of the tests already. But for 62368, there are additional tests that are, are, are required. So um, this is a, this is a good example of where a product would would need additional delta testing to prove compliance with uh, 62368. So I think it's just probably worth pointing out, you know, 
uh, in a bit more detail why we've got these enhanced requirements. You know, lithium-ion battery technology, battery chemistry, is now widely used. It's widely used in everything from your mobile phone through to electric vehicle batteries. Um, and the reason that lithium-ion is so prevalent is because you get a lot of bang for your buck. You know, it's got a very high energy power density, um, which means you can get a lot of battery life out of a very small size package, which is why it's great if you think about it for mobile phones. Um, nobody wants to be carrying around a large mobile phone to host a big battery or equally having to recharge their battery every five minutes. Um, but lithium-ion, it's great technology, but it needs to be very carefully managed. You need to have a very good battery, um, battery protection mechanism, battery management system. Um, so actually, the battery packs are, are actually quite complicated in their design. And that's really why these, where these new requirements have come from, is to make sure that this stuff's been evaluated. So I guess it's just finishing off with a, a bit of a word of caution to people to say, in the past, you may well have gone to the test lab and said, yep, here's a battery cell. It's got UL, you know, certification to UL1642. Um, the battery lab may have, or the test lab may have done some additional qualification testing. It's That's not going to be enough under 62368. And I think you just need to go into it with your eyes open and to be prepared. I'd also add, um, you mentioned some battery safety standards for the UL1642 and there's UL2054. Um, it's again, you've got to be really careful about where you are um, intending to, to market and sell your product if it's in North America or if it is in the rest of the world that um, works to the IEC standards. Um, you'll, you'll notice the subtle differences between IEC version of 62368 and the UL version of 62368. Now, um, we mentioned that the batteries must be compliant with their um, foundation-based uh, electrical safety standard. Um, in the IEC world uh, and the UL world, they have different standards. So, um, sourcing the battery, which is appropriate for, for both areas uh, for global market access, is, is actually um, not a straightforward task and is something that you, you will need to... Uh, need to keep your eye on. So it just adds another level of complexity then from the sounds of it, especially as this standard wants people to sort of cover more and, and do more when it comes to batteries. Yeah, it's it's like having a critical component and sometimes you can you can uh, apply different safety standards to, to similar electrical products, but um, and, and you can you can say uh, this this is a more arduous standard than the other one. Um, Unfortunately, with with UL sixteen forty two and IEC six two one three three, which are both appropriate for lithium ion batteries, um, it's very difficult to to say which of those two is is the more arduous standard. Because uh, if you run a comparison between the test re testing requirements, those standards, um, some areas are harder in one standard than the other, and vice versa. So it's it's um, it's looking out for for products which if you're if you're marketing your product globally um, you 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 need going to need to be finding batteries which do have this dual certification otherwise you're going to find um, you you're running into trouble with your compliance. So six two three six eight it's it's a hazard based standard um, but I, I I think there seems to be a bit of confusion going around because I've heard some people seem to be mixing up the terms hazard and risk which is I understand it are sort of two different things. Um, are they are the two terms really interchangeable? Yeah, hazard and risk, definitely a lot of discussion around those two terms. And no, they're really talking about 
different things. So um, it's probably just worth spending a little, a few minutes just talking about where the origin of 62368 came from. It basically uses what we call hazard-based safety engineering as a methodology. So we've touched on this a bit in the discussion up to now, but basically you take a product, say a, a laptop computer, and then you say, right, okay, um, so it's got some moving part in it because I've got hard disk drive and I've got a fan. So these are potential hazards. And then what you do is you say, right, how am I going to mitigate against being able to stick my finger in and chop the end off in the fan? Right, I'm maybe going to put a guard over the fan or I'm going to limit the energy in the fan. Um, it's that kind of concept. And we call that hazard-based safety engineering. And that's where the challenge in applying 62368 is, is being able to adapt and understand um, and identify where those where those hazards come from. Risk, on the other hand, is something quite different. And you're absolutely right. People tend or have heard um, interchanging those two. A good example of where risk is used is in the medical safety standard, IEC 60601. Um, that introduces a new element. That introduces an element of risk management. So it basically says, right, from the whole concept of, of designing and developing my, my medical device, I need to understand what the risks are. So am I going to get risks um, through the manufacturing process, through the design process? Am I going to get risks from users using it incorrectly or environmental issues? You know, my, my device perhaps being used in the desert when it wasn't intended or designed to be used in the desert. So, you know, it's going to be exposed to uh, you know, dry heat is going to be exposed to fine dust and so on. Um, and that's really the fundamental difference. Risk is about identifying and mitigating those 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 risks generally around a life cycle approach. Um, Hazard-based safety engineering is all about identifying those hazards um, and then following through and proving those safeguarding measures. Um, the example I gave earlier with the laptop is, is is really simple and really straightforward. But if you get a really complicated bit of equipment, and that's where the skill it comes in in safety engineering is the skill level required. You just need to have an awful lot of experience and a very good eye for detail. And probably you need to have a little bit of a pedantic mindset to go through because otherwise there is a high chance that you're going to overlook some of those hazards. And it's really critical that you identify them all. And that's really the difference. So to answer the question succinctly, no, they're, they're two quite different things. Um, best way to think about them, think about 60601 and risk management in those scenarios and then hazard-based safety engineering in the way of identifying hazards. I'm, I'm not massively technical, but um, someone said to me uh, the other day, which I thought was maybe quite a useful way to, for people to remember things, was the difference between a hazard and risk is that you've only got risk if you have a hazard. Um, but you need a third element to make that hazard a risk, and, and that's exposure. You do, absolutely. And, you know, a good example of that is you can just think about risk in terms of somebody walking down the street, actually. So, you know, if you've got a small puddle that's, that's a shallow puddle, um, you've probably got minimal chance of stepping in it because it's a small puddle. And even if you do, the risk is very low because it's very shallow. If you then take that to the next example and say, well, actually, I've still got a shallow puddle, but actually this time, you know, it's 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 20 feet long. Well, this time the exposure risk is very high, but again, the risk is still very low. The hazard, if you like, is still very low because you've only got shallow water. 
You then take that and say, right, I've now got my 20-foot pool. It's now six feet deep and it's full of crocodiles. Well, now, as you can see in, the, in this very simple example, that I've got a high probability of falling into it in the first place. And if I do fall into it, then I've got a high probability of getting injured. That's, that's a, in really simplistic terms, that's a good way to, to look at risk. Yeah, and um, 6368 uses the term transfer mechanism within it and that's that's what it uses to um define how the risk becomes uh sorry how the hazard becomes the um becomes the reality so you, you have a hazardous um source you have a hazardous energy be it a hot surface be it an electrical part um and you need a way of transferring it to the user and the operator um so you if you have the transfer mechanism then then the hazard is real um so that's where you then bring your safeguard in which is the uh which is the element which sits between the user and that hazard and prevents them from 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 it uh you know becoming a cropper as it were um <laughs> so in richard's in richard's puddle analogy then i'm going to put my wellies on that's my safeguard. <laughs> oh, your wade is a bit six foot deep. <laughs> yeah, I might avoid the crocodile one. <laughs> or, 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 or just don't leave the house. There you go. Another yeah. way to mitigate the risk. <laughs> There you go. No chance of any of us falling in a pool of crocodiles at the moment, and it's all stuck at home. Yeah. I mean, what it's about is it, 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 it accepts that you can't you can't completely remove all hazards from products, and products need hazardous parts to be able to function. Um, but what you are doing really is is your um, effectively you are managing the, the risk of that hazardous part by um, by using safeguards and 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 um, yeah really sixty three six eight the simplest safeguard that you will always have with your product is its enclosure it prevents access to the internal hazardous parts um, so yeah it's uh, it, it, it's that's the traditional way of looking at it. Um, but as we talked about earlier in, in the discussion, um, who knows what future designers may come up with. Um, it allows you to think outside the box um, by coming up with new and innovative ways of um, protecting users with safeguards, uh, uh, protecting users from hazards with safeguards. So I, I know that 62368, it's been available for quite a while, but um, the deadline to transition is now just eight months away. So given the short time remaining, are there any sort of tips you've got for manufacturers if they, they haven't really addressed this yet? Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So the, the current deadline being um, just 20th of December uh, of this year uh, doesn't leave much time. Uh, to, to if if you've not done much uh, legwork already, um, but uh, the, the, there is still eight months to go. Um, we mentioned before whether something that previously complied with sixty nine fifty uh, or six double oh six five would um, by default or automatically um, comply with six two three six eight well the short answer is 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 no it, that's not that's not a given um there will as we discussed be uh some element of delta testing um you may need to look at the the components you're using and 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 if you're relying on pre 
um, pre-approved components compliance, you will need to to recheck those and 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 be sure that there's no additional requirements within 62368, uh, as we discussed about batteries, is a great example of that. Um, there there are still options um, if you're confident that you are able to, to to take a test standard and read it and apply it to your product, then you're, um, you know, you really need to, to, to sit down with the standard, with your product and do that and, and identify the hazards within your product, identify the safeguards and look at the standard and how the tests that you, you need to apply to prove the safeguard robustness. Um, so that's quite a job. Uh, there is a, the service that, that Tufsud offer, which is a, a pre-compliance service. So if you're if you're not as experienced with um, 62368 or, or electrical safety standards, then um, uh, instead of just going straight into a full test 62368 test program, which can be risky and expensive, um, you can you can um, for for. For a short period of time, depending on the complexity of the product, um, allow one of the Tufsud safety experts to have a look at your your product, have a look at any previous testing that has been done, maybe against 6065 or 6950, and identify um, potential areas where delta testing will be needed, identify potential obvious pitfalls and things that may need to be uh, changed to comply with 62368, and it will just ensure that when you do um, uh, apply the full standard or go for full testing that there's a much lower risk in in failure and delays in, in getting to the um, the end goal which is is proving compliance to 6368 just just to add to that I guess my top tip and I mean this sincerely is you know you got eight months left you got until the end of this year and you know test labs are you know, on the back foot a little bit because of the um, because of the current situation that we have with COVID nineteen. Um, so you know, although a lot of the test labs are still operating and working, is my my best advice to you guys is if you haven't done anything about it, get in touch with your test lab as soon as you possibly can, um, and get the ball rolling. Eight months is certainly long enough. Um, but, you know, if you've got documentation, you know, the main delays when you do a product evaluation are with documentation and batteries could be a big stumbling block, as we've already discussed, um, you know, and it could potentially take three, four, five months to to close out those items. So time's of the essence and uh, get in touch with your test lab as a priority. So time's really ticking, isn't it? Uh, yeah, massively. And, it, it, it the, you know, that time will go in the blink of an eye. So, you know, but you need to be realistic here is in Europe, you're not going to be able to sell devices unless you've after after, you know, the end of this year. Um, so into 2021, unless you've transitioned to the new standard. So, well, thanks so much for joining me, Richard and Matt. I think it's given us a lot of valuable information today. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. I um I hope uh, some of the uh, in the short period that we Richard and I have been able to get across uh, some of some of our experience with with this standard and and some of the the interesting and more key pieces of information that we've discovered whilst um, working with with our clients transitioning their product from from sixty nine fifty and sixty five over to six two three six eight. 
And for me, I'd just like to say, firstly, you know, thanks to you, Sarah, for asking some great questions and uh, making us think a little bit about what we were going to say. And to Matt, you know, always great to get some good technical insights from uh, from an expert in the standard. But for me, I hope what you've got out of listening to us today is a bit of an insight into the standard. I'm, you know, along with my colleagues, we're all passionate about consumer products and electrical product safety and so on and working to the standard. That's why we've been doing this for a good number of years. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll set you on the right road to making and designing safe, compliant products. Thanks, guys. So to summarise, sort of briefly what I've picked up from our conversation is it, it sounds like 62368 is going to provide a lot of um, flexibility in providing safe, uh, improving safe des- design. And it's it's really there to support um, technology and how it's rapidly sort of converging and lots of new innovations that are coming along as well. But as, as we're moving from two old standards that are very sort of objective in their method of proving compliance, um, 62368 seems to have a much more subjective approach. So it seems to me that not every individual engineer may identify exactly the same hazards if, if you know, two people are considering a similar project, uh, product. So manufacturers might want the support of an external specialist to help them ensure they've identified every potential hazard, I guess. So thank you for listening, everyone. If you like what you've heard today and you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe via Podigy, Spotify and iTunes. You can also see more about what we do on our website at www.tufsud.com forward slash UK.